Today's Bible reading is taken from Numbers chapter 13, starting from verse 25 to 14 verse 11, and then from chapters 14 verse 26 to 30. So Numbers 13 verse 25. At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amulekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quietened the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What would we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting built to the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And then from verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upwards, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come to the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Our Bible reading is taken from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 to 24, and Exodus 17, 1 to 7. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water, 
When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Ribidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the now, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is this the Lord among us or not? Good morning, church. This is a reading from Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get stuck in. Father, as always, we need to hear you speak. And so won't you still the clamor of voices in our heads? Won't you give us ears to hear? Won't you soften our hearts? Lord, break through the clutter and speak to us. We plead with you. We pray that you would meet with us through the person of your Son, in the power of your Spirit, as we open your word now. Amen. It's quite fitting, given our times, that the main topic of this passage is a disease. The technical name for that disease is cardiac sclerosis, or hardness of heart. 
The disease is spiritual, not physical, and it basically involves a choice, a choice not to trust God. As with any disease, the only way to understand it is to study it as, it's wor- as it works its way through the population. And when you study its pathology, when you watch it closely, then you can draw conclusions around transmission and symptoms and prognosis, all with a view to coming up with a treatment plan. So these terms are familiar to us right at the moment. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at transmission, symptoms, prognosis, and treatment. And we're going to do that because that's precisely what the writer to the Hebrews is doing in this passage, even if he's not using exactly the same language. He looks at how this disease plays itself out in the life of Israel. And then he draws conclusions for his own generation. Our Bible readings, uh, those three Bible readings, trace the history that the writer to the Hebrews is interested in. And so that's exactly what we're going to do once again. We start Exodus 15. Exodus 15, Israel have just been redeemed from Egypt in the most spectacular fashion. They've just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. In fact, they've just singing just finished singing God's praises for this miraculous salvation. It's, it's a wonderful chapter. You should go and read it. They've finished singing God's praises for this, this remarkable salvation. They walk three days into the wilderness, and they are thirsty. And the only water they can find is bitter. And so they grumble. Three days is all it took. Three days from rejoicing to grumbling. That's all it took. But the Lord is patient, and he provides. Exodus 17, we jump ahead, Exodus 17, and again the people are thirsty. And again, at the first sign of trouble, they fight with Moses. They test the Lord. They grumble. They even hint that life was better in Egypt. Once again, the Lord is patient. Once again, he provides. The places where these things happened are called Mara and Masa and Meribah, or bitterness, testing, quarreling. It's worth thinking about this. Milestones, the milestones on the road to the promised land, were named after Israel's hardness of heart. Little reminders of their rebellion scattered through the desert. So what we have in Exodus are two early outbreaks of this disease called hardness of heart. And then in Numbers 13 to 14, we have perhaps the most severe outbreak on record. Israel are right on the border of the promised land. Moses sends spies to go and scout the land out. After 40 days, they return. And they all agree, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But of the 12, only two advise that Israel should go into the land and take it. The others have all forgotten. They've all forgotten God's past faithfulness to Israel. They have forgotten God's saving power and his loving presence in rescuing them from Egypt and in sustaining them in their journey through the wilderness. The ten spies see only danger, and they counsel comfort. They choose comfort. The people of Israel are only too happy to follow them. And they grumble. This time there are no hints. They say it plainly. Life in Egypt was better. We want to go back. When Moses and Aaron try and reason with them, try and talk some sense into them, 
They openly rebel. It is only the glory of the Lord that can save Moses and Aaron from being stoned by their own people. Then we come to Psalm 95, centuries later. David is doing what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He's looking back at how this disease has plagued the people of God, and he's warning his own generation. So we can see exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is doing when he quotes Psalm 95 in in chapter 3, verse 7. Just have a look there. He quotes Psalm 95, and it reads as follows. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's doing the same thing David did. He's looking back at how this disease plagued the people of God, and he's warning his own generation. So what we've seen is that hardness of heart, this disease, hardness of heart, mutates. It mutates, and it goes through multiple cycles. It passes from generation to generation. The people under Moses suffered from it. The people under David suffered from it. The writer to the Hebrews is concerned for his own generation. So what can we learn? What can we learn about this disease as we observe these repeated outbreaks? Well, let's start with transmission. How do you catch it? Hebrews 3.13 tells us, no uncertain terms. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How is the heart hardened? By the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we are presented with a lie and we choose to believe it rather than to trust the one who has always been faithful. Rather than to invest ourselves in what we know to be true. We see this clearly in the case of Israel on the borders of the promised land. Everyone agreed the land is good. It is flowing with milk and honey. God has been faithful to his promises. The only obstacle is that there were people in the land. Now there are two perspectives on those people. The ten said, the ten spies said, we are like grasshoppers to them. They will crush us underfoot. Joshua and Caleb said, they are like bread to us. We will devour them. So what's the difference between these two perspectives? Joshua and Caleb remembered. In the words of Numbers chapter 14 verse 9, The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Joshua and Caleb chose to trust the Lord. The people of Israel chose to trust the lie. Of course, the deceitfulness of sin doesn't begin with Israel on the borders of the promised land. It goes right back to the very beginning. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Surely you won't die. It was there in the beginning. It was still rampant in Jesus' day. In the parable of the sower, it is the deceitfulness of wealth that makes a healthy plant sick. 
the lie that my security comes from money, that God is a nice to have. He's a kind of a bonus. He takes care of my spiritual needs. He's a, he's a sort of a Sunday hobby, if you like. Sound familiar? The deceitfulness of sin is causing hardness of heart today. As I speak to you, as I speak to you, some of your hearts are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's how it spreads. That's how you catch this thing called hardness of heart. That's transmission. What about the symptoms? Again, we see the symptoms clearly in Israel on the borders of the promised land. Three obvious symptoms that surface as this disease progresses. You go from capitulation to grumbling to open rebellion. So the lie is presented to Israel. This is the lie. The good life is in staying where you are. The good life is in self-preservation. That's the good life. Yes, the land may be flowing with milk and honey, but the good life is here in the desert where we know we can be safe. The Amalekites are just too much for God. That's the lie. Capitulation comes in Numbers chapter 14 verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. Why were they crying? The land was good and the Lord was with them. They should have been rejoicing. They should have been singing the song they sang in Exodus 15 after he brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground. But they chose to forget all of that. And they chose to embrace the lie. It was just too scary. Asking me to give up the comfort of staying where I am, that was asking too much. And so they capitulated. First symptom is that you weep and rejoice over the wrong things. You weep over God's commandments. And you rejoice over the alternative of sin. You see everything back to front. Because you've bought into the lie. And so you capitulate. Second symptom. Grumbling. Grumbling is a shocking symptom when we stop to think about it. It's shocking. I guess it's the equivalent of a, a purple rash across your forehead. It's a sign that really all is not well. What is grumbling? Well, it's a kind of a... It's a kind of blame shifting. It's a whiny justification of my sin. And here's the shocking part. This is the purple spots on your forehead. It's a justifi justification of my sin by blaming God. Right? It's the classic finger pointing, it wasn't me defense. Only you pointing your finger at God Almighty, God himself. Just listen to the Israelites. Numbers 14 verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, We wish that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Again, this is not new to humanity. The Lord God said to Adam, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man answered, 
the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit from the tree. You see, you made us leave Egypt. You gave me this woman. It's your fault. Wow. Well, maybe it's not so wild. Maybe it's not so wild because we do this sort of thing all the time. We do it so often we are numb to the shocking nature of what it is we're doing when we grumble. You know, Lord, you want me to trust you? But my finances are a disaster. Why should I? And the Lord says, but I gave you the most precious thing I have. I gave you my most treasured possession. I gave you my one and only son. And he suffered and bled and died for you. And he rose again. Trust me. But we say, you may have done those things, Lord, but but why should I struggle like this? How can you expect me to trust if you're going to treat me like this? Grumbling says to God, it's not good enough. What you've already done is not good enough. If you wanted my trust, you shouldn't have put me in this situation. So don't blame me if I go and make my own plans that have nothing to do with you. That's grumbling. And somehow we can see, we can see the offense in Israel's grumbling, but we can't see the offense in our own grumbling. See, our situation is different somehow. I think part of the reason that we can see the offense in Israel's grumbling, but not our own, is that we, we tend to romanticize these Bible stories. We tend to fairy tale them. We miss the fact that those people were really thirsty. Their throats were dry. There were real men in Canaan, Canaan, armed with real steel, hard, sharp. They would have killed the Israelites the first chance they got. Is our situation worse? Is it really worse than that? They were facing death. Are our challenges greater? Are they? How then? Is our grumbling any less shocking? That's grumbling. After grumbling, the disease progresses to open rebellion. Back to the book of Numbers. Joshua and Caleb hear the grumbling. They tear their clothes. You see, they appreciate what this grumbling is. They tear their clothes. They plea with the people. The Lord is with us. Do not fear our enemies. Do not fear them. But the people pick up stones to stone them. So we've gone from capitulation to the lie, to grumbling, to open rebellion. And the thing we need to see is that hardness of heart is a degenerative disease. That's what makes it so dangerous. Where does it end? If you have this disease and it goes untreated, what's the prognosis? This is the answer to the question, Doctor, how bad is it? How long have I got? And the physician of scripture replies, hardness of heart is a chronic condition. Left untreated, it is terminal. It is deadly serious. That's why the writer to the Hebrews doesn't treat failure to trust trust God as a kind of a moment of weakness. He calls it evil. Look at chapter 3 verse 12. To have an unbelieving heart, a heart that leads you away from God is evil, evil. It's not just a momentary lapse. 
It's a flirtation with wickedness and the death that follows wickedness. And that's why the tone of warning in this passage and in this book is so strong. The consequences are deadly. Think about it. 40 days of spying followed by a moment of evil unbelief became 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until their bodies fell in the desert. God himself gives the prognosis. He gives it plainly. Verse 11. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you see how stark this is? Either you die in the desert, or you enter God's rest. There's no gray. Now, we're going to speak about in detail about God's rest next week. But for now, we need to say, this is not a choice between death and recovery. It is that, but it's so much more than that. This, in this life, if we enter into God's rest by trusting him, by trusting Christ, and we continue to trust in him, well, we're in recovery. The fever has broken. Even if we are still on bed rest, the fever has broken. But the end of that process is not just health. It's not just the absence of disease. The end of that process is life to the full. The full life, the good life, the abundant life, the best life. The life of eternity in a resurrection body with the God of glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The blessed life. In the end, this is a choice between two extremes. Death and the fullness of a blessed, perfect life in God's presence. That's why the warning is so strong. So what do we do? How do we treat this disease? The writer to the Hebrews gives us a four-step remedy. First, we hear his voice. Then, you watch your heart. Then you exhort one another. We exhort one another. Finally, we hold firm to the end. Hear his voice, watch your heart, exhort one another, and hold firm to the end. Let's just run through them very quickly. First, you have to hear his voice. Just to begin the healing process, you have to hear the voice of God. To begin the healing process, you have to swallow the tablet. Right? That in itself doesn't heal you. Of course, that medication needs to be ingested, and it needs to flow through your bloodstream. But you have to follow, swallow the tablet. Now how does that translate in terms of hearing God's voice? How exactly does God speak? It's a key question for us. Because of course there's a range of perspectives across the wider church. How does God speak? How does the Holy Spirit speak? It's a key question. Look at chapter 3 verse 7. Look at it with me. What does it say? It says... As the Holy Spirit says, so here's the Holy Spirit speaking. And then the writer quotes Psalm 95. He quotes the Bible. God speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks through the word that he inspired. God speaks through the Bible. We hear him speak when we open the Bible. If we don't open the Bible, if we don't swallow the tablet, we won't hear him. We won't hear him speak today. And then the warning of chapter 2, verse 1, you'll remember from a few weeks ago, that warning applies. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
The warning is, you need to pay attention to what you've heard before. You need to hear God speak through his word, or you're going to drift. The first step is to hear God speak today. It's a dangerous step, which is why step two is so very necessary. Step two, watch your heart. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, take care, watch, take care brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and believing heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We have to watch our own hearts for any hint of evil unbelief, any sign of drift. One of the critical moments for running that test, that diagnostic test, is the moment that the Bible is opened. In that moment, you are confronted with the word of God. God is speaking. In that moment, you are placed in the position of decision. You have to choose God or the lie. You have to choose. That word that comes to you through God's written word, through the Bible, will do one of two things. Either it will harden your heart or it will deepen your trust through obedience. It's one or the other. God's word never returns void. It's never purely neutral. It always does something. Either it's going to harden you or it's going to deepen your trust as you obey. So when you read the Bible or listen to a sermon, how does your heart respond? How is your heart responding right now? Is your first thought, I told you so? Now you can show someone that you were right all along? That Christian friend you were in an argument with, I told you so? When you read the Bible, whose sin is it that you see? Do you see the sin of, sin of others? Or do you see your own sin? Is this call to obedience that you are hearing through God's word, is it just the thing you were looking for to set your brother straight? Or is it for you? Is it a claim on your life or is it just an indictment on others? So maybe you do recognize that it's a claim on you. How do you respond? Are there a thousand very good reasons why in this case, obedience is just not practical? It's just not reasonable. Like in every other case, obedience would apply, but not in this case. And when you don't obey, well, whose fault is it really? I mean, if God hadn't put you in this situation, you never would have disobeyed. My friends, we have to watch our hearts. We have to watch our hearts. Sin is always seducing us with the lie that in this situation, there's a good alternative to trust and obedience. Remember, open rebellion doesn't explode onto the scene. It comes by a thousand small compromises, a thousand capitulations to the deceit of sin, a thousand minute hardenings of heart. It's like the intake of cholesterol. It takes years and years. But every single piece of biltong plays its part in that final fatal heart attack. So we have to hear his voice. And then we have to take careful stock in the moment. How am I responding? So be self-aware. Be deliberate. Be intentional. How am I responding to this word? What emotions are arising within me as I hear God speak through his word? Step three. Thankfully, we are not alone in this. Verse 13. 
exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Are you doing that? Are you exhorting others to keep trusting in God? Have you done it today? As far as I'm aware, it's still called today. Are you inviting others to exhort you, to challenge you, to rebuke you? Or do you just get defensive? You know, I mean, who the heck does this person think they are? This new convert. I'm on staff. Of course I'm trusting in Christ. It's what I'm paid to do. Or I've done explore. I've been a Christian 30 years. And this new Christian is asking me how my walk with the Lord is. I mean, who do they think they are? Of course, we'd never say that. Christians are too polite for that. But somehow that dynamic is playing out in our hearts. When someone exhorts you, maybe you just switch off. You know, blah, 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 blah. I've heard this. I've heard this before. Thanks, but do you find yourself switching off? You see, do you see this is why church is so important. This is why life groups are so important. We have to be exhorting each other every single day. We can't, it's true, we can't gather on a Sunday right now, but so what? You can call someone any day of the week and say, hey man, keep going, keep trusting, keep following after Jesus, keep choosing obedience. That's what each one reach one is all about. And if we are not doing this, if we're not making those calls, what's the alternative? Let's look at verse 13 again. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Reaching out to each other is not just a nice to have. It's not just Christian etiquette. It is the remedy to hardness of heart. It is the difference between life and death over the course of a lifetime. So, what's the remedy? We have to hear his voice. We have to watch our own hearts. We have to watch out for each other's hearts. And finally, we have to hold firm to the end. This one's the culmination of the others. This one gathers in all the others. The hearing of his voice, the watching of my own heart, the exhorting of my brother, my sister, gathers all of those and amounts to holding firm to the end. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the difference between a migraine, which can pass in a day, and diabetes, which is a lifelong struggle. A daily struggle for the rest of your life. Hardness hardness of heart is more like diabetes than it is like a migraine. The way to beat this disease is to pick up your cross Every day, today, as long as it is called today, to pick up your cross today and follow after Jesus. Our confidence is in Him. In the words of Hebrews chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is better than Moses. Because he trusted his father from start to finish. And if we keep our eyes on him, he'll get us home. He is the antidote to hardness of heart because although he never had it, 
He died from it. That, this is the thing that happened on the cross. The thing that happened on the cross was a heart transplant. Jesus got your heart hard, dead as old leather. And so, of course, he died. But you got his heart soft, healthy, beating with the lifeblood of loving obedience, trust in his father. My friends, you can't beat hardness of heart in a day or in a single decision or with a single prayer. In fact, you can't beat it at all. But Jesus had. Jesus has. And Jesus will. And so we cling to him. And we have to cling to him to the very end. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's hardness of heart. You contract it by the deceitfulness of sin, by embracing the lie. The symptoms are capitulation, grumbling, and then open rebellion. The prognosis is death. The treatment involves hearing his voice, watching your own heart, watching out for the hearts of others, and holding on to Christ, clinging to Christ to the very end. This passage is essentially a health warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I don't need to tell you, we are in the wilderness. It is hot and dry, and our throats are parched. We're suffering from the most severe heat exhaustion. We have deadly enemies on every side. But today, you have heard his voice. Are you going to trust him? Let's pray. Father, you know our situation. We are struggling. We are battling with unemployment and debt and health problems. Lord, we are feeling isolated and anxious. Some of us are depressed. We are angry. Perhaps we're struggling with feelings of bitterness. Father, we, we are battling to trust you. We look around at the chaos. We are battling to trust you. We, we look inward. We see turmoil in our own hearts. Father, we are battling to trust you. And so we thank you for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Help us to keep going in this pilgrimage through this wasteland. Father, keep us from evil, unbelieving hearts. Soften our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, as long as it is called today to trust you and to follow after Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.